This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we talk with Crystal Littlejohn, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Dr. Littlejohn is author of Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics, published in 2021 by the University of California Press. In the book, Crystal uses several data sources to develop the concept gendered compulsory birth control and show how intersectional and reproductive justice perspectives matter. Our conversation was recorded on August 30th, 2022. Thanks for joining us, Crystal. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I, as people know who listen to the podcast, I, I read the books. It's one of my pet peeves of podcasts who uh, don't read the books. But I really enjoyed your book where you engage theory while remaining accessible to many audiences. So before we get into the substance of the theoretical contribution of the book and the rest of it, can you tell us about your writing or perhaps revision process that makes the book so friendly for academic and non-academic audiences? Yeah, I love this question. And I will be perfectly honest right from the beginning. It was messy. I had a very messy writing process. I wish that I could say that I went in knowing what I was going to write about and I just did it, but I really didn't. I went in knowing the interviews, right? So the the book is based on just over 100 interviews with young women from the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was really familiar with the interviews based on work that I had done previously, but I didn't know what I was going to write about for the book. And so I started digging into those transcripts and realizing that there was a a big story that I wanted to tell, but it was hard to figure out what that story was going to be. And so while I was kind of working on the analysis, I was also reading books to kind of give me a sense of what did I want my book to sound like? What was the style that I wanted my book to have? And I think who were the people that I wanted my book to be read by? And it was very clear to me early on that I wanted my book to be read by a broad audience. Kind of part of the work for me is doing what I consider and think of as a sociology for the people, where it's not just for academics, it's for everybody who has any interest in the social world. And I believe that I have a responsibility to make my work accessible to them. And so I read books, I kind of dug into the analysis, I had my sister, my younger sister read kind of every draft of everything I ever wrote. And she uh, is more in the natural sciences. And so as we were, you know, she was reading about the social construction of gender and sex, push back on things that I said to say, not that she didn't believe it, right? But to say, how can you make this believable and accessible to people that don't subscribe to social constructionism or don't know what it is? And so that was a big part of it for me was just really not just being isolated, working on the book by myself. And I know people talk about making sure you talk with others. But for me, to be honest, especially at the beginning, talking with other academics wasn't what I did, right? I definitely called on other academics to read the book uh, once I had it drafted. But I think at the beginning, as I was kind of putting it together, I really counted on people that weren't academics to help me figure out kind of what I wanted it to sound like and to make sure that it was accessible to them. I think that work you know, comes through and, and pays off in just the fluidity of your writing. And, and as I was saying, just how accessible uh, some of these more complex ideas that you could read in a gender theory journal. Well, your book does a great job of critically examining widespread assumptions about the gender division of labor among heterosexual couples in providing contraception. So this is a book about contraceptive use, contraceptive choices. Obviously, there's connections with people who are interested in public health and uh, reproductive freedom and reproductive justice and rights and so forth. So for those of uh, those who have not read the book, uh, what does your work say about this division of labor? Who is thought to be responsible for what? And how does a critical perspective on contraception help us think differently about those responsibilities? The key thing is that 
reproductive labor is incredibly gendered. And I think just to, I want to make sure that is clear to everybody from the very beginning. And what my book gets into is the way that contraceptive use itself is a gendered process. And then in some of the book, I talk about how the resolution of pregnancies can be a part of a gendered process too, right? How we expect people to resolve pregnancies, whether that's via birth, abortion, or adoption, is also kind of flowing from these gendered meanings about responsibility for pregnancy prevention. And so in the book, I focus on how the responsibility for preventing pregnancy comes to fall on women and people who can get pregnant and how they're taught at a very young age that it is their responsibility to make sure that they're using prescription birth control methods uh, to do so and to do so meaning to prevent pregnancy. And so one of the key challenges for young women, as they discussed in their interviews, was trying to figure out how to make sure that they're taking their birth control regularly and how to navigate condoms when they are used to using prescription birth control and their partners are less interested or less comfortable or less willing to use condoms. And so that's where kind of gender compulsory birth control as a concept comes in, where I'm thinking through what is it that is going on in contraceptive use and what are the social forces that are shaping this? I think oftentimes people believe that contraceptive use is a purely medical thing. It's a public health thing. And one of the big things from the earliest days of doing my work is trying to get sociologists to understand that contraceptive behavior is a fundamentally sociological phenomenon. And in fact, what I show in the book is that this is just a reflection of the bigger structural issues that sociologists are fascinated by, right? You don't have to care about birth control to care about the way that it's gendered, right? If you care about gender, you should care about birth control. If you care about medical sociology, you should care about birth control. If you care about bodies and sexuality, if you care about, like, everything in sociology, it plays out in birth control. And I think sociologists have been largely not on on track with thinking about this as a sociological phenomenon. I think people that are that do reproductive work in sociology, many people see the challenges that kind of befall you doing that kind of work, right? A lot of sociologists just don't think that it's a particularly sociological topic. And so with the book, the key thing for me is showing that young women become socialized to use prescription birth control to prevent pregnancy. They see it as their responsibility to do so. And they believe that their partner should be responsible for condoms, but only especially at the beginning of relationships. And oftentimes people transition off of using condoms and onto strictly using hormonal birth control, which then places the responsibility for preventing pregnancy strictly on the woman's shoulders, which leads to a number of negative consequences, as I discuss in the book. There are many ways that men try to avoid using condoms. And the catalog of reasons is really quite stunning. Everything from, you know, sizing problems to complaints about, you know, sensation and feeling, and then folks just saying, like, it's impossible for me to attain an adequate erection. Truly creative, you know, justifications for not not taking responsibility for this contraceptive tool, which you also make the point I think is really important to think through is that one of the first chapters is his condom and then her birth control is the next chapter. One of the points you make is that external condoms, I mean, they're a mutual thing. You know, when we're talking about penetrative sex, we're talking about both partners having contact with this device. And so reframing the kind of the ownership and responsibility for those things, I think is a really insightful contribution here in terms of the construction of meaning of contraceptive devices, as you've, as you've said. Right. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I do think that it's incredibly important that we frame the way that we think about that, right? Because this notion of partners, kind of some of them making up excuses for why they don't want to wear condoms, some of them pretending they're going to wear condoms when they're not. If you think of it as solely a man's thing, then it hides the ways that those things fundamentally violate the bodily autonomy of their partners, right? So if a man refuses to wear a condom or pretends like he's going to wear a condom and then proceeds to have penetrative sex with his partner, because it is a mutual thing, right? Because it comes into contact with both partners' genitals, because it is fundamentally 
about something happening to this other person's body, then I think it behooves us to recognize the ways that action by a male partner is fundamentally having some consequence for this other person's body, not just for pregnancy. I think we we think about it in terms of pregnancy, right? Like it's not fair if he tells her he's going to wear a condom and he doesn't because he can make her get pregnant. But it's not just about pregnancy, right? Even if pregnancy doesn't ha- doesn't occur, even if no sexually transmitted infection occurs, the fact remains that that is a violation of that person's right to bodily autonomy. They wanted to have sex under particular conditions. Their partner, because of what they did with the condom, Um, violated the terms of that kind of arrangement and that agreement. And that's fundamentally a violation of their right to have sex under the terms that they agree to. And so in my mind, one of the ways that we can come to recognize the harms that befall women during sex is by recognizing the ways that we have these insidious messages and ways of thinking about birth control that can then end up reinforcing these gendered ideologies that hold that it's really only men's satisfaction and men's desires that matter when it comes to the condom, when in reality, it fundamentally affects their partner, their women partners as well. If I'm not mistaken, there was recently a case where a man and a woman were having sex. I mean, I think he either, they they had sex twice, penetrative sex twice. And the first time a condom was used, the second time I think he he said, yes, I'm going to use a condom again. He didn't. And then he had some, you know, in my opinion, well-founded legal consequences for that. Because essentially that is, as you're saying, violating the autonomy. Uh, I mean, that's assault, right? It's sexual assault. And so it's very encouraging in some ways that there are folks who are recognizing that form of harm, however you feel about the criminal legal system. But certainly there's harm there, as you say, even regardless if there isn't a pregnancy or STI kind of consequence. Absolutely. And I think that was a thing that was really striking to me in the interviews that I think changing the discourse will be really helpful for a lot of the women who had partners who removed condoms without their consent or told them they were going to use condoms and didn't, they didn't necessarily see that as a form of sexual violence, right? So even when I talk about it, sometimes I talk about it as harm to try and kind of recognize or reflect the way that some of them saw it, right? They might have saw it as harmful. Some of them saw it as annoying, but very, very, very few of them saw it as assaultive, right? So I think, and I think that's part of the consequence of this larger discourse that we have that doesn't treat it as assault, right? That treats it as a guy being a jerk or a guy being a liar versus a guy assaulting a person because he lied about putting a condom on or didn't put a condom on or poked holes in the condom. The number of things that partners can sometimes do that constitute assault and it's just not recognized as, a, as such because of the normalization of sexual violence. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that word normalization because that's what I was I was thinking in terms of just the ways that oftentimes men's behaviors are just are just bad. And, you know, if we take those and put them in the, oh, that's men doing men things category, it really, it does a couple of things. One, of course, it excuses a lot of bad behavior, but it also doesn't encourage or require or support men who are trying to live up to better standards, right? And just be decent people. Well, Crystal, your book has pretty impeccable timing. We are in a post-Roe versus Wade world here in the United States. Obviously, a lot of people had thought that this probably would happen with the appointment of some recent Supreme Court justices. And it's a very scary time for many people who favor reproductive justice and reproductive freedom. What's it like to have a book that centers reproduction and contraception in the context of the recent decision ending Rose constitutional protection of abortion? It is simultaneously heartbreaking and inspiring is the best way that I can put it. I think knowing that this moment was coming didn't make it any easier when it finally happened. I think writing a book that is based on interviews from 2009 to 2011 and then seeing how much everything resonates exactly as it does with people today is a testament to the longstanding gendered nature of contraceptive use. It's a testament to the deeply entrenched gender inequality that exists in our society that doesn't go away after 10 years, right? That I could have written this book 30 years ago, and I think that still would resonate today because this is the landscape that we're facing. And so when it's come to the Supreme Court decision, 
it has been heartbreaking, especially because of my knowledge of people's need for abortion and experiences with abortion. So as soon as I heard the news about the Supreme Court's decision, I cried a lot that day because all I kept thinking about was all of the participants that I had interviewed who desperately needed abortions and who got them or who needed abortions and couldn't get them even before the reversal or the overturn of, of Roe v. Wade. And it was just a really hard day for me thinking about what was in store for people moving forward. At the same time, because of how long I've been doing this work, I also just felt even more committed to continuing to expose the challenges that people face having their right to reproductive autonomy respected. And I think the Supreme Court's decision is just a reflection of the ways that we violate people's right to reproductive autonomy and we violate the right to reproductive freedom. And that's fundamentally what my book is about. And I think that my book would have resonated with people regardless, but I think that it resonates especially strongly right now because of the notion of gendered compulsory birth control and because of the way that that applies to so many different aspects of what's happening right now, right? So gendered compulsory birth control is about how we compel women and people who can get pregnant to prevent pregnancy, particularly using prescription birth control methods, which are seen as being the most effective methods available for them. And it's also about the ways that we compel them to resolve pregnancies in particular ways, right? So it's a gendered compulsory birth control system because we're compelling women and people who get pregnant to do particular things instead of allowing them to make their own decisions based on their own ideas about what's best for their bodies, what's best for their lives, what's best for their families, etc. And so I think the book resonates especially strongly right now, because when you look at the Supreme Court's decision, that is gendered compulsory birth control, right? That is the Supreme Court saying this is the way that people should resolve pregnancies. When we think about challenges with contraception on both kind of sides of the spectrum, some people have said because abortion is going to get harder, then they should just get on the IUD and get on other forms of prescription birth control. That is the epitome of gendered compulsory birth control. That's exactly what I write about in this book. And so I think when it comes to the ways that this moment has been inspiring for me, it has just hardened me to see that the work that I've been doing is speaking to people's experiences and I think is providing one way to think about how to move forward to make sure that we are protecting everybody's right to reproductive freedom and in ways that might be unexpected or overlooked for people, right? So I think some people believe that when they say, I'm going to go and get my cousin on the IUD, right? That they think that that's a good thing, right? Like they might not have access to abortion. I want to make sure that they can have the life that they want to have. And so they believe that saying they're going to put them on the IUD is a good thing to do, right? And one of the things with my book is really challenging us to rethink what we consider a liberatory birth control politics, right? It is not a liberatory birth control politics to coerce somebody to get on a particular form of birth control, right? That is not what liberation looks like. I do think that the pill and these other methods have an incredible capacity to liberate people. But in order to do that, it has to be based on a foundation that is actually liberatory, right? And coercing people or pressuring them into using prescription birth control just isn't the way to do it. And so when we kind of bring it full circle and think about my book in the context of what's happening with the Supreme Court, it really speaks to the ways that pressure and compulsion are intersecting right now to make people's lives very difficult if they can get pregnant. Yeah, I think we could say so much more about the Supreme Court and you know their reasoning and all sorts of ways that that reasoning has been challenged and criticized. But I think what you just said there about reproductive freedom and reframing how we think about those set of choices does resonate with a part of the story you tell in your book about your own life and linking your experiences to Black feminist foremothers, the Black feminist sociology, Black feminist epistemology. So. Could you tell us something about how your project was shaped by Black feminist theory, Black feminist thinkers, and how important that tradition is in the formation of your book and your and your larger project? It's been incredibly important, and I'm so grateful that you're asking this question. It 
was really the foundation of not only my book, but the work that I've been doing more generally. I think one of the things that was really frustrating for me starting out with doing this work is the ways that I think researchers have, some researchers at least, have tended to overlook the experiences of Black women and marginalized women and the ways that overlooking those experiences prevented us from gaining really important insight into what's going on sociologically. And so there's a tendency in kind of pregnancy prevention research, contraceptive research to focus on unintended pregnancy and to think about people not using birth control and then to just try and find ways to get them to do so. And I think when you think about it from that perspective, when you have Black women, poor women, brown women, people can get pregnant who are not using birth control, right? I think for some of these researchers, the assumption was, or the starting point was, what can we do to get these people to use birth control so they don't get pregnant. And for me, from a Black feminist standpoint, that is just the wrong place to start, right? And in general, I try and be mindful and respectful of scholarship, right? I think we're all trying to do the best work that we can. But when it comes to the ways that we've demonized and pathologized Black women, brown women, poor women, and more generally people who won't use prescription forms of birth control, I just can't, right? I just can't say it's important to be mindful of the different ways that we think about things, right? We are demonizing and pathologizing people based on a starting point that doesn't take seriously their life experiences. And so when it came to my use of a Black feminist perspective and Black feminist epistemology, what was really important to me was to say that Black women and Black people who can get pregnant have something to teach me as a researcher, and they have something to teach us as sociologists, and they have something to teach us as a broader public, versus saying, they are doing something bad and we need to figure out how to make them do something good, right? I'm saying we are doing something bad as researchers by dismissing their experiences and not taking them seriously. And so I said, what can I do and what can I learn if I start from where these participants are and try and understand their experiences in social and historical context. That's the sociological imagination, right? That's the power of sociology to say, I'm going to look at their personal experiences, but I'm going to transcend the individual. And I'm also going to think really critically about the sociological models that are in my mind, that are just models of the world that may not actually reflect their true world. So instead of taking what I imagine to be my model as the kind of true reflection of the world, I instead said, I'm going to look at these women's experiences and see how this can help me refine my model and my understanding of the world. And that was crucial, right? It was that perspective. It was being able to say Black women know their experiences. Black women know about their contexts. I don't know about their experiences and I don't know about their context, even though I'm a Black woman myself, right? I, I'm not them, right? I can't exactly know what's going on for them, but I can learn about that if I just take seriously what they're saying. And from doing that, that's when I was able to see hey, this whole thing about some of these women not using prescription birth control or not using any form of birth control, that is in part a consequence of this assumption that if partners don't want to wear condoms, then women must necessarily get on prescription birth control because they should have been on prescription birth control anyway, right? And so when you think of it that way, then I was able to see, hey, so many of these women were not using any form of birth control because their partners didn't want to wear condoms and they didn't believe that they should have to be on prescription birth control. And so that's not actually a problem with what these women are doing. That's a problem with our social structure and context that suggests that the solution to gender inequality and a partner not wearing a condom is the woman saying, okay, they're just going to get on prescription birth control so they don't get pregnant. And so I think it was the Black feminist epistemology that allowed me to make that um, kind of dramatic in my mind and in my view shift in the way that we think about what's happening for black women and poor women um, and to really uncover the gendered processes that are contributing to 
not only contraceptive non-use, which I think is what folks might be focusing on, especially if we're thinking about public health and unintended pregnancy, but in my mind, to think about inequality and injustice, right? And coercion and violence and pressure, right? Those are the things that I'm fascinated by and that I think we should try and eradicate, which kind of circles back to some of the comments we were making earlier about the ways that birth control use is such a fertile understanding, broader sociological issues that you can see playing out in people's intimate interactions around contraceptive behavior. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you start from a position of pathologizing black and brown women and people who can get pregnant and poor folks of many racial identities, you lost the plot, man. One of the things that I keep trying to talk to my students about is how a sociological frame of mind recasts these questions and asks us to critically examine the construction of the problem in the first place. Because typically the so-called problem is only a problem from a particular kind of perspective with a particular set of values. And there's something else that's going on there that accounts for this so-called problematic behavior that's more often seen in certain groups than in other groups, right? Yeah, that's very helpful. Well, you just mentioned public policy scholars and folks who work on contraception and reproduction and unintended pregnancy. And as you just said, often these groups pathologize individual women for their, you know, poor non-contraceptive use and that those folks should just take full responsibility for any kind of reproductive choice by just getting on the pill or IUD or other form of prescription birth control. But of course, as you've been saying, you challenged this dogma. So I'm wondering about the reception of the book. How have folks in that less critical approach to these questions, how have they responded to the book? What kind of feedback have you had from from them? The feedback has been overwhelmingly positive, which I have been very grateful for. I think when I first started sharing this work, I was nervous, right? I was nervous because I didn't see what I was saying as particularly radical or provocative, but I recognized that there were people that saw it that way. I had some people kind of asking if I was anti-birth control or asking, you know, if I thought that birth control was bad. And I think that was tricky for me at the beginning, right? And I knew that when I was coming out with a book that was challenging the ways that we take kind of the liberatory nature of birth control for granted, I was nervous, right? I was less nervous about people having a negative reaction if they do work on marginalized people's experiences, because I think anybody that does work on the historical and and contemporary experiences of as we've been talking about, Black, poor, disabled, right, women and people can get pregnant. We know, right, we know that historically birth control has not always been a tool of liberation, right? It has oftentimes been a tool of oppression. And there are issues around who has a right to have babies and who doesn't, right? So I was less concerned about the reception there. I I had a very strong feeling that they would understand exactly what I was talking about. But I think from the more mainstream perspective around reducing unintended pregnancy and seeing it as a very much individual phenomenon where it's about individual women not taking responsibility for preventing pregnancy versus recognizing that this is a structural broader issue that's not just about individual choices. I, I was I was nervous. I think to, to sum it up, I could go on and on about why I was nervous and how I was nervous, but I was nervous that there was going to be pushback against the book. But I was also ready to kind of fight that fight because I believed very deeply in the message that I'm sharing with this book. I believe very deeply in reflecting the women's experiences as they shared them with me and our other members of our research team during their interviews. And I knew that I wanted to create a platform where we could have a different kind of conversation and where we could say, I know that there are reasons that people believe that a compulsory birth control system is the right way to go. But my book shows why that's the wrong way to think about things, right? And my book shows how that 
does a great deal of harm to the people that they imagine they're supporting and that they're helping by showing the ways that it encroaches on their reproductive autonomy, by the ways by showing the ways that it encroaches on their bodily autonomy, and by showing ironically how it makes it harder for them to prevent pregnancy when we say they have to use a particular birth control that is quote unquote meant for their bodies, when in fact that's just not the method that works best for them, or that's not the method that they want to use, or they're really committed to using condoms for a whole host of reasons. And they have a right to say they want to use condoms and they want their partner to use condoms versus coming up against this message that says, no, condoms are less effective. And I always want to say, because they're when they're not used consistently and correctly, right, they are ineffective, right? But when they're used consistently and correctly, they're, they're quite effective. And I just have felt throughout the kind of time I'm doing this work that I knew I focused on things that people typically didn't focus on, right? My earliest work focused on dissatisfaction with prescription birth control, which was, there was hardly any literature on that, right? Their kind of assumption was, if people don't want to get pregnant, they should use a prescription birth control method. And if they're not, we need to figure out how to help them use them better, right? And so I already knew from the beginning of my career that I was focusing on things that were not being explored as thoroughly, if at all. And so when it came time to write the book, it was just like, okay, here's one more thing that I'm going to be doing that kind of goes against what people imagine to be the way that we should think about things from a mainstream perspective. But I believe that there's power there. And I personally felt like it was necessary to do it. And so I'm grateful that the reception to the book has been very, very positive from across across the board, right? So not just from sociologists. I know that there are doctors, you know, I've talked with doctors about it. I've talked with other health kind of providers and practitioners. I gave a kind of talk for a clinician training for Planned Parenthood around gendered compulsory birth control and how clinicians can better support the needs of their patients, right, by not upholding this gender compulsory birth control system. And so it's been really good. I've been pleasantly surprised by the kind of overwhelming support for the book and the kind of relative lack of negative feedback that I've gotten, right? I think the vast majority of people who I've spoken to or or who have reached out to me have expressed a deep enthusiasm for it. And I think this is just one point that I do want to make in, in terms of thinking about the reception I also want to point out that it hasn't just been scholars and professionals. It's been just women using birth control methods, right? That reach out to me and say like, I really loved your book. And I love the ways that you are challenging people to think differently about the way that we gender birth control. I People that tell me they didn't know that they were experiencing gender compulsory birth control. They just knew they were annoyed. And then they read the book and they're like, oh, this is why, because this isn't fair. And even as I tried to tell people, it's not fair. People wouldn't listen to me. But like now I have a resource to say this is a sociological phenomenon that is grounded in inequality and that we can in fact change. And I think that has been really the most rewarding part of this whole experience for me, getting messages from just individual people who are not academics, who are not researchers, who are just women who've read my book or sharing the book with their friends. I get emails from people or, you know, social media messages from people like, I gave your book to my friend so that we could talk about this. And I think they were going through the same experience. I have people tagging me on Instagram. I have to say, I did not see that where people are talking about my book in their stories. And it's just, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful to know that I tried to write a book that was going to be for a broader audience and that I am in fact reaching that broader audience and teaching them to think differently about birth control. And I think I'll just share one more story on this in terms of the kind of broader impact. I got an email around the time that the book first came out from a 70-year-old man who just congratulated me on the book and told me that he and his wife used to talk about birth control and stuff in the 60s. And he always felt like it was the woman's job to use the pill and that he wishes my book was published all those years ago and that he's glad it's published now. And when we talk about audience and reception, I just never would have even said, like, what is the audience for my book? Like, I never would have imagined, right, that 
I would one day get a message from a 70 year old man telling me about how he appreciated my book. Right. But I think that was so striking when I received it. And I think it just really speaks to the ways that this topic affects so many people's lives, not just today, but the way that it's affected their lives for decades and decades and decades. And so I've been really grateful that all of the work that I put into the book, it has resonated with people and that they overwhelmingly have greeted it with positivity and appreciation for the ways that I'm trying to get us to think differently about something that's so taken for granted. Sociology for the people. Love it. No, it's great. I mean, it's great to see that your book and your ideas are having, you know, a real impact, you know, outside of our little small world of sociology, which is important. You know, I did find myself thinking a lot about black women's strategies for resistance while reading the book, resistance, birth control and resistance in other ways. And so in your book, you talk about the fact that many black women both resist the idea that they are solely responsible for birth control and that they are more likely than other women to buy external condoms for their male partner's use. I thought this was a really fascinating thing. Can you say more about that? Yeah. And so I think a big part of this experience for me is getting us to think really critically about people's intersectional experiences, right? So the ways that different structures can intersect to shape people's experiences. And so when we think about gender, I think it's getting better, but I think there's been a tendency in sociology and other disciplines to think about gender in really singular terms. And so I remember we used to have talks and there, you know, there would always be this critique that a presenter would say something like, what I found is that gender mattered in this way. And they're, but they were talking about white women. And then they say, but when you look at race, we see that for black women, this is happening. And so then you just kind of scratch your head and say, well, I thought that you said that gender operated this way. But then when you're kind of going through your findings, it seems like there is this intersection of race and gender that you have just completely obfuscated in your analysis and discussion. And so what I think about is happening for black women here is that Black women face mainstream ideas about gender and gender roles, etc. But they also have their own ideas about what gender means and what gender looks like. And I talk about this in the book, right? When we talk about working, for example, right? The notion that working is not a feminine thing to do for Black women is just kind of absurd, right? Like working has been a part of Black women's experiences in this country from its inception because of slavery, right? And so this unpaid labor obviously exploitative labor. But then when you move forward, right, thinking about the ways that Black women had to work and couldn't be in the home, right? So this notion that gender for Black women means not working, or I should say the notion that being a gendered being or or doing gender appropriately means not working was just not something that resonated for Black women. And I think when it comes to these experiences in the book, you see the ways that their interactions with their partners were not gender normative, right, in terms of kind of mainstream thinking about what that means. And so I want to be clear, and I I make clear in the book, it's not that these women aren't exposed to the same gendered messages that they should be on a prescription form of birth control, right? If anything, I think Black women, Brown women, poor women are some of the people most pressured to get on prescription birth control because of these broader messages about unintended pregnancy. So it's not that they weren't exposed to those messages. They absolutely were. But as I show in the book, for many of the Black and poor women, as as a sample would have it, they just push back against this idea that it should just be them using prescription birth control by the broader literature that uses quantitative methods that shows that when it comes to using birth control, Black women, for example, are not as likely to be on a hormonal birth control instead of a condom, right? So there's a whole bunch of things that kind of play into these experiences. But I think the key thing to think through is the ways that the path of least resistance for Black women in the sample looked very different than it did for women of other races, particularly for white women, right? So if a Black woman's partner told her he didn't want to use a condom and she said that would be fine, 
right, the challenges that she might face to being able to resolve a pregnancy, to get pregnancy care, et cetera, that looked very different than it did for the white women in the sample because of structural issues with healthcare access, et cetera. And so in my book, what I try and really get us to think about is the ways that you have particular structures around gender that are interacting for Black women with other structures, other social structures that we might be taking for granted that deal with class, that deal with their ability to access resources, that deal with group differences in exposures to STIs, for example. All of those things intersect to make the experience of using birth control and using or not using condoms a particularly tricky landscape to navigate for them. But what I show is that they were more likely to push back against the idea that they should use prescription birth control and not use condoms, and they were much more likely to expect their partners to use them, as well as they were much more likely to buy condoms. And so I think this is when we talk about the Black feminist epistemology, right? Like this way of thinking about things, right? This way of challenging our typical discourses around what's happening for Black women is particularly important because you never hear about Black women being more likely to use condoms, right? You just, you don't hear about that. You hear about Black women being less likely to use prescription birth control. You hear about Black women being more likely to have an intended pregnancy, but you never hear about the ways that there are group level differences in condom use, which is an, an important health promoting behavior. And so there's a lot there. And there's just so much that I can get into. And I, even as you asked your question, I can see myself like going off in these many different directions. But I think suffice it to say, the key thing for me is using a critical sociological perspective to understand how intersex structures shape Black women's experiences in birth control and have their experiences look different than they did for people of other races. I think, you know, gendering hormonal birth control and these other prescription methods like for women, if you see that as one kind of strategy, you know, what many of the Black women that in your study are saying is like, no, I want to keep the relational aspect of contraception like alive, which at least is how I interpret it. So basically what these folks are saying is, no, no, there are two people involved in this sexual act, right? Whatever it is. And like, no, both of us have to be involved in this, whether that means you put a condom on it. And obviously this doesn't happen 100% of the time and there's power dynamics, there's a bunch of things that influence condom use. I just think it's one of those moments where I thought to myself, you know, what does this kind of gender compulsory birth control do to help kind of distance men from co-responsibility for contraceptive management and really pregnancy outcomes, you know, kind of more generally, right? It's another example of, male partners just kind of really not pulling their weight, so to speak, in terms of responsibility for sexual behavior, right? Which connects to a bunch of other things we've been talking about. But it's another sense in which I think sometimes black women are leading the way to think about other formations of relationships that are actually like more mutual and more richly relational than some of the more transactional kind of one-sided responsibility things that, that happen in other forms of relations. Yeah. And I do think that there was this kind of sense of dynamism around contraceptive use. There was more ongoing negotiations around what that would look like over time. There was one woman in the sample who used condoms with her partner for 10 years, you know, and so this idea that condoms can't be used, right, that that condoms can't be effective, I think reflects this broader dominant idea that gets to what you're saying, Dan, around the ways that we let men off the hook for doing things that they should be doing, right? So when we say that people are just not going to use condoms, so you should just get on a prescription form of birth control, right? That to me is just kind of astounding when you think about it compared to other health outcomes and health behaviors that you just never, people would just never say those kinds of things about, right? Like this notion, for example, if we just think about like brushing your teeth, flossing is hard, flossing, you know, people don't like to floss every day, so just don't floss, right? Like we would never imagine those things to be okay to say, but when it comes to birth control, I think, and this is where we see the gender nature of birth control coming in, right? Taking a pill every day can be hard for people, right? But we never hear people say, or I would say very rarely ever hear people say, taking a pill every day is hard. So people just shouldn't, we understand they just don't do it, right? And if you do hear that in terms of birth control, then the uh, the argument is use the IUD, right? So it's not just don't use anything. It's okay, woman, get on another form of birth control that won't require you to do daily maintenance. Whereas when it comes to condoms, 
there's this interesting way that we just kind of off put it onto women. If we say men don't, some men don't like wearing condoms, that means condoms are less effective. Well, that's fine. They should just talk with their partners and get their partners to use prescription birth control, which is really important for me and my work because I show that it's not inconsequential for their partners to use prescription birth control, right? There are issues with dissatisfaction. There are issues with side effects in the past. There are issues with cost, right? There are issues with just kind of the work of having to manage a birth control regimen, right? All of those things become ways that we can just off put this work onto women. And I think it just relates to these broader structural issues around the ways that we expect women to do more work and tolerate it and tolerate it quietly. And I think one of the strengths for me of the book is showing the real challenges that women have had with using their birth control and not invalidating those things, right? Not saying they should just, you know, put up and shut up and stay on a birth control method, right? But instead showing it is unfair how we expect them to to carry the burden for preventing pregnancy single handedly blame them when a pregnancy occurs that they didn't want to occur and say nothing about the importance of their partner sharing responsibility for that outcome. And so just kind of in thinking about your words and what it means for the different kinds of relationship arrangements, I absolutely think that Black women show us, one, the way, right? They show us a different way that relationships can be arranged, but they also show us the importance of interrogating gender and challenging gender inequality, right? Because even as they did try to have their relationships look a certain way, I also want to be clear, it's not that they didn't face partners who resisted, right? It's not just like it was a fairy tale story for for all of these women who said, no, they didn't want to be on prescription birth control. They wanted their partners to use condoms. Obviously, some of them had challenges with getting their partners to do so. But I think that's the power of being able to use a sociological perspective to say, if people are not using birth control, what is happening there, right? And to be able to illustrate what's happening there is a relationship dynamic. It's not an individual failing in the ways that that the broader discourse can lead people to believe, right? There's a relational thing going on. That relational thing is based in gender inequality. And so if we want to change that outcome, we have to look at the structural origins of the outcome versus trying to pin this on individual women to change their behavior by simply getting on prescription birth control. You mentioned that this book came out of a project with several interviewers, over 100 women who were interviewed. And this is your first book, right? But it was not your dissertation. So what would you say to some somebody who is maybe they're just out of graduate school, you know, they've passed their dissertation defense, they're excited and exhausted, who thinking about, you know, do I transition this dissertation to a book? Do I join another project or do I continue a project maybe that was not related to my dissertation? What advice would you give to others who are thinking about embarking on another writing project instead of reshaping their dissertation into a book? I think this is such an important question. And I think one of the key things to ponder when you're working on a book or or considering a book is to really interrogate what your goals are and what your message is, right? What's your argument going to be? I think that especially when it comes to a dissertation, we write it because we have to write it, right? Like that's to get your PhD, you do a dissertation. And so you think through what your research questions are going to be, and then you write a dissertation. And it's that easy, right? Obviously, you just think through you write at the end, right? Obviously, it's not that easy. But the notion that you have to write a dissertation is a given. And the notion that dissertations look a particular way is a given. But I think that when it comes to writing a book, the reality is a few things. One, you don't have to write a book. And two, people don't have to read your book, right? Whereas with a dissertation, you have at least one person you can hope, right? Your dissertation advisor hopefully will read your dissertation, right? But when it comes to a book, it's just you don't have those same expectations that somebody's going to read it and that anybody has to pick it up. And I think that was one of the big reasons why for me, I wanted to write an accessible book for a broader audience. But I think what was key for me in doing that was I wanted people to savor my book, right? I wanted people to pick it up and to want to read every page and not just to skim through the book or look for things to cite or look for the most interesting parts. I wanted to try my best to make the whole book itself interesting, which is in part because of my background 
down, right? I'm from a poor family. My book was going to cost, I imagine, $25 to $30. I didn't want somebody spending their hard-earned cash for a book that they would skim or spending their hard-earned cash for a book that they felt like I should have just used that to buy a few coffees instead of buying a book that is now just going to sit on my bookshelf and I'm never going to read. And so this gets into the question of thinking about what your goals are for the book from the beginning. If you have a dissertation, right, obviously you're going to have to shift those goals, right? Your goal is for a book that's coming out of a dissertation is not going to be the same. I hope that there's a recognition that when you're writing a book for an academic audience or other audience, you have a different set of goals, right? It's not to prove that you're an expert in things. It's to communicate some big picture idea, right? For me, my big picture idea was that there is a gendered compulsory birth control system that is unjust and that creates a whole host of negative consequences for women and people who get pregnant. That was what I knew I wanted to write about. Eventually, as I mentioned, I didn't know that from the beginning, but as I worked on it, I came to decide that's what I wanted to write about. And it made sense to make that into a book. I think when we're trying to think through projects, it becomes really important to say, do you actually have a book idea or is it a multiple paper idea? Are you committed to actually writing a book that's not based on your dissertation? I think that is a really important question to ask. I felt really overwhelmed by working on a book while I was teaching and trying to do service and everything that wasn't based on my dissertation, right? Analyzing over 3,500 pages of transcripts with a full-time job as a professor at a liberal arts college was incredibly hard to do. And I did have moments where I was like, what am I thinking about like starting a book from scratch, right? That's not based on my dissertation. But I think knowing what my goals were kept me grounded, kept me motivated, and knowing that I could share a message that was important to me and that would be read by as many people as possible if I did it right. And so I think if I had to just kind of sum that up in a nutshell, I would say if you're trying to think about writing a book that's not based on a dissertation, I think you have to think about what your goals are for that project. I think you have to be mindful of who your audience is for the project so that you can make sure that from the beginning, you are making the right moves and right choices since assuming you're not in the graduate school context where all you focus on is your dissertation, right? When you're in the context where you're working on a book that's not your dissertation, there's a lot of moving parts and you have to make sure that you have time for all of those moving parts and that you're being as efficient as you can be in the process. And so I think about the audience at the beginning is key so you can make sure that you don't have to do this major overhaul later in the process when you realize, hey, I didn't do what I should have done to pitch it for the right folks. And then I think lastly, getting a clear sense of what you want your book to look like. As I mentioned, when you're writing a dissertation, you have a model of what dissertations should look like. I think most of us can agree dissertations are not beautiful literary tomes, right? That's not the aim. But with a book, right, you can't expect that people are going to pick it up and read it and going to give you any of their time, right? You have to think about what you want your book to look like so that you can make sure that it's seen as worth it for somebody to pick up. That while there is a lot of work that goes into starting a project from scratch, I think that can be really scary and overwhelming. But I also think it's incredibly powerful, right? It was so powerful to write a book where what I wanted was what mattered, where I didn't have to be thinking about do different people that I have to demonstrate my expertise to agree with this or think it should look this way. I could just do whatever I wanted to do. And I think that is an incredibly rewarding part of that experience to say, I am steering the ship. This can look the way I want it to look. I can do quirky things. I can do non-traditional things, right? Like I write about my own experience with birth control in the book. I'd never done that in any of my other writing, but with my Black feminist epistemology and lens, it just felt like I have a responsibility to do that, right? I have a responsibility to my participants and to my readers to do that. And I think that there's just so much that you can gain from working on a book that's not part of a dissertation. It is a lot of work. I did feel very overwhelmed by the process, but it was also incredibly rewarding. And I think that so much good can come out of starting a project that's not a dissertation.
if you're thinking about it, do it, right? If you're thinking about starting a book and it's not a based on your dissertation, even if it feels scary, I would say do it, at least try to get through it and don't be scared away by the overwhelming parts of it. That's just a part of the process. Well, what are you working on these days? We're in this academic culture of busyness and productivity. So I feel like you published this book. You have several, you know, many, many articles to your name. What should we be looking out for? So... I didn't imagine that I would be saying this so quickly after my first book was published, but I'm actually working on a new book. I'm working on an edited book right now. Ricky Solinger and I are putting together an edited volume where we're really interested in getting essays based on on the ground responses to the Dobbs decision. So from folks across the spectrum, it's not just an academic book, right? It's not just researchers. We have some researchers writing about stuff, but it's nurse it's doctors, it's other healthcare professionals, it's legislators, right? We're really trying to shed light on what the DOPS decision means for people on the ground and to elucidate the strategies that they're using in response to protect people's right to abortion or people's access to abortion in this country. And so that's one project that I'm working on. I'm also working on a new project looking at experiences with couples and how they navigate birth control use together. So the book is based on interviews with young women. My next project is looking at kind of the dyadic nature of contraceptive behavior. So really trying to understand as we were talking about, like, what are these relational dynamics? What are the structures that shape those relational dynamics? And how does pregnancy prevention and pregnancy itself as an outcome reflect a gendered and or other kind of dynamic relational phenomenon? And so those are the big things occupying my mind right now. And I have other academic life, there's other papers, you know, there's grant projects, right? There's always there's teaching, right? There's a bunch of stuff that's kind of in the mix. But those are, are the two big things that are that I'm kind of focusing on right now that I have on my mind and that I'm excited about. I'm really excited about them. I was thinking when I was reading your book, you know, what do men think about condoms, you know, and what's their experience with them and how did they learn to, you know, use one as correctly as possible? What about their buying experiences? There's one person in your book who buys condoms for her male partner and she has some not nice things to say about him because he won't go and buy condoms. He certainly wants sex, but he doesn't want to purchase condoms. So anyway, I just, I'm sure there are people who've written about that. I just don't know about it. There's a growing body of research examining men's experiences. And so things like this, where it's experiences with condoms, kind of thinking about pregnancy, thinking about abortion, right? So it's a growing field. And I think there will only be more and more research, which is a good thing, you know, examining men's experiences as we start to think about prescription birth control that might be coming available for them eventually, as we think about the Dobbs decision and what that means. I, I think I'm sure lots of folks have seen stories about increasing interest in vasectomy, right? So I think that men becoming a bigger part of this conversation is on the horizon. And with my next project, right, it's about understanding men's experiences and also understanding how they relate and interact with their partners to get a clear sense of what's going on since we just don't have very much research at all looking at couples, especially not very much contemporary research at all looking at couples. So that's next. Cool. All right. Well, I will have to put that on my reading list and we'll have you back when you're ready to talk about that part. Well, let's transition to our banter segment where we get to talk about pop culture, things that are not strictly academic and sociological. It's the start of the semester time, at least for me. Today was the second day of classes. People were asking me the week before, are you ready? And I just had this look of terror on my face because I was not ready. Although having done this for a while, you just sort of get into a rhythm and once the semester starts, you just kind of get on the treadmill and I hope you don't fall. So my syllabi are done. My course LMS websites are all fitted. They're all ready. I'm one of those people who likes to plan the whole semester ahead of time, get everything in the campus is what we use. And I just don't want to think about it anymore. You know, as long as the dates all line up and the due dates and the times are all set and the pages all work, then I'm happy because I don't want to deal with it during the semester. But let's talk about happier things. Dragons. Have you been watching the new HBO uh, House of the Dragon show, the follow-up to Game of Thrones. I have, I have. You were talking about being ready. It's like, are we ever really ready? So I'm like, I was ready for that. I absolutely caught, caught I caught the, the first episode. I have to catch up on the second one, but I definitely have caught the first one. Well, listen, I thought for a opening episode, it was 
pretty great. There was some intrigue. There were flying. I mean, look, a dragon. I mean, how cool is that? Pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, there was tragedy. I mean, there was this. Speaking of reproduction and childbirth, right? There's a whole scene that, not to spoil it for people, but some two people die, first episode, and there's a lot of blood, which is definitely definitely Game of Thrones. I mean, it was this story that many people you know know about in terms of history of putting a husband, not a pregnant person themselves, in in the driver's seat of reproductive choices, right? So clearly, resonance with uh, has resonance with contemporary issues in the United States. I will say, I have seen the second episode. I don't know that it's quite as dramatic as the first episode, but worth watching. I mean, it's one of those things. I guess apparently 20 million people watch the first episode in the, I guess, in the United States, which is a pretty good premiere these days for the for streaming. The big question, I think, is will this king remarry? And if he does, will he have an, a male heir? Because, of course, we're living in high patriarchy times. I will say the second episode, there is a character who is a potential spouse for the king who's quite young. And so there are issues with, with sex and really, really young children. This is a child we're talking about. Just content warning for those who are, who've never watched HBO. Content, content warning. I think I'll probably keep watching it just to do before the, the week starts. Right. And I do think it helps to kind of have knowledge about what's out there. And, you know, like sometimes you have things that unexpectedly reflect what's going on in the world. And if you're trying to escape from that, obviously you might watch the end and be like, ah, oh, that's what like, I was trying not to have that in my life right now. So sometimes it's not good to have kind of the art mimic our reality, as it were. But I think I will probably, like I said, I just haven't, I just didn't have a chance to catch the second episode. But me and fantasy, it's just like, it's it doesn't even have to be that great. If it has dragons, it has magic, it has a good enough story, I will most likely kill to me to at least, even if it's just on in the background sometimes, I think House of Dragons is probably going to be one of those things that I actually watch, watch, right? Not that I'm just kind of putting on to pass the time. Even if the second episode wasn't as good, if you nail the first episode, to me, that's what's most important. Like I'm one of those people when it comes to shows, when it comes to podcasts, I just don't have the highest tolerance, right? It's like, you have to catch, you have to get me, you have to get me hooked or like, I just can't stick with it. So I think they got me with the first episode. I was like, that was really compelling. I liked, it was interesting. I will most likely be committed to the rest of the episodes after that. So even if they're not as good, I think they did a great job, at least with me. They hooked me with the first one. So I'll give the other episodes a shot. And they also like, we have rapport, right? They had original Game of Thrones. Gives me faith, you know, I'm like, I can do this. And I wasn't one of those people that was like super unhappy with the last season. I, you know, if there are any people involved in the show listening, I appreciate it, the whole show. So I will happily commit to to this new series. I think, I think it's going to be good. I think you're right about the goodwill. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, runway that, you know, the showrunners and, you know, store writers and things have with the show for sure. And can't go wrong with, with dragons and palace intrigue and continued contest over who's going to be the heir to the Iron Throne. So what have you been watching? What should I be watching? So I will start by saying this may not be everybody's cup of tea, especially as we're talking about like fun and fantasy stuff. But I discovered the home edit on Netflix about organizing. And I'm a big fan of organizing generally, but perhaps because of the school year getting ready to get started. I just, you know, I might have just been in a particular mood. I checked out this show and I loved it. It like totally made me get even more excited about organizing. I finally organized the apps on my phone. Anybody who saw my phone would just like laugh about like the absurd number of apps that I have and like how do you even know where things are. And I watched the home edit and I have to say within two days of watching it, I had my apps on my phone organized. So I think it's entertaining and inspiring. You know, if you like watching shows about organizing or if you're the kind of person that needs like that motivation to like watch something to like get you to do a little something, I think the home edit is, it was fun. I liked it. Okay, so I have to ask, how did you organize your apps? I mean, they're, they're thematic in some way. This is fascinating, and I think it's going to, like, sound wild, but it is organized by color. I would have never imagined that. I would have never imagined that it would make sense to organize the apps by color. It's organized by color and it totally works. First of all, it looks beautiful. So like if you're a person who like needs things to look 
nice to like maintain. It does look very aesthetically pleasing, but also you realize that you kind of know how to recognize the apps by color anyway. And like this was one of the recommendations from this book. Like I want to be clear, I'm not taking credit for this. If you love it, you know, I'd love to say it was just me, but it's not. If you hate it, and it definitely wasn't me, I'm making all that completely clear. You organize it by color. So I have reds, I have blues, I have whites and blues, right? So some of the apps have like a prominent white background and then kind of blue is somewhere on there, but it's like a white and blue kind of thing. I have greens, I have purples, I have darks and I have neutrals. I have to say, like, if you would have told me this before, I would have said like, that's insane. Why wouldn't you organize by kind of type of app? But I tried that and it didn't work. And that's why I had apps everywhere. I organized it by color. Now I have only a single page. It's like my homepage. It has all of the apps organized in there by color. And you can kind of see them at a glance. And the stuff that you use, you kind of, you know what they look like. Like I know Twitter's blue, you know, like you just kind of, you just kind of know those things. And so it just makes it really easy to go in and to find your stuff. So that's my plug. All right. That's a hot tip because I was not expecting you to say by color. Right. Like I said, I wasn't expecting that either. And when they said by color, I was like, that's absurd. But I said, I'm going to give, like, that's the first thing with organizing. You don't just reject things without trying, right? Like it can seem insane and you just say, I'm going to give it a shot and see if it works. And I'm like, I have five pages of apps. If it doesn't work, I don't think it can be worse than having five pages of apps that I don't know where things are anyway. So like, give it a shot. And lo and behold, it's working. And I'm glad I did it. I'm going to stick with it. So. All right. Well, that's a that's a fair point. Well, Crystal, you just mentioned Twitter. Where can people find you on Twitter if they want to follow your work or learn more about what you're doing? Yes. Join me on Twitter. It's Dr. K Little J. So I'm at Dr. K Little J on Twitter. Love to see you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us. It's a great pleasure to learn more about your work and chat about Game of Thrones and this very strange organizational style for apps, but maybe I'll give it a go and really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And if you give it a go, definitely let me know on Twitter. Let me know how it goes. You try it. All right, will do. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Thanks to Joe Cohen, who directs the Queen's Podcast Lab, to our fantastic producers, music by Lena Orsa. Thanks so much, Lena.